0: Thank you, Amanda, and good morning, everybody. I hope you're nice and comfortable on your lounges. I mean, there's some advantages to being home and not here. You can have a cup of coffee, a tea, uh, snacks, apparently. Um, But I also hope that your Bibles are open at Acts chapter 9 because that's the passage that we're going to look at together right now. Uh, Let me pray for us. Our loving Father, remind us afresh of your transforming grace that takes sinners like us and makes us righteous in your sight, that takes one-time enemies and makes us your servants. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, after coronavirus uh, numbers soared past 2,000 last Tuesday, uh, the country's chief medical officer, um, Brendan Murphy, was deeply concerned. This is what he said, he said, we have, we have to get people to take this seriously. We have to change the way we interact as human beings in our society for quite a long time. Now, that's a big statement, isn't it? And the Prime Minister echoed the same thing, he said, get used to this, we have got to change. We're being told that Australian life as we know it has to become different. It's because the confronting realities of this present epidemic mean that until those realities change, we need to change. We need to be transformed with with new behaviours and new forms of social engagement and new disciplines. You see, some truths are just like that. They they hit home so forcefully and so quickly that they necessitate a radical rethink of our lives and how we're living them. Do you know there actually exists, in English, an expression that refers to such moments when confronting truths produce a radical change in life. You know what we call it? A Damascus Road experience. And that expression actually comes out of the passage that we're looking at today from Acts chapter 9. One man gets confronted by a truth that he had been zealously denying and this leads to the one of the most radical, historically significant 180 degree life transformations of all time but before we get to it I want us to I want to flag for us something really important you see in all likelihood this is the good news is is that this current epidemic of coronavirus is eventually going to pass because immunities will build a vaccine is likely to be eventually developed and some kind of resumption of old life will take place The time will come when we actually get to look back and share stories about what it was like during the the year of coronavirus. What's true now is not going to be necessarily true in years to come, praise God for that. But the same cannot be said for the truth that confronted that man on that road to Damascus 2,000 years ago because that life-transforming truth is still true today and it is just as confrontingly but wonderfully relevant to you and to me, now, as much as it was back then. Now, to set the context for a passage, we need to go back to Jerusalem, we need to go to the state of affairs that existed, following the stoning of Stephen at the end of chapter 7. What you see is that there is a young, zealous Pharisee named Saul, and he'd been minding the cloaks of those that were actually throwing the stones... Um, but he wasn't doing that because he was nervous or reluctant to get his hands dirty. Have a look with me at the beginning of chapter 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women... And put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So while you've got violence erupting against the church in Jerusalem, the church members, they they flee for their lives. But the unforeseen problem for the enemies of the church, of course, is that wherever they went, they kept preaching the risen Christ wherever they, they were scattered throughout the world. And even more people came to faith in Jesus and that's what we've seen over the last two weeks as we looked at Acts chapter 8 and and the preaching of Philip. But now in chapter 9, we come back to Jerusalem, Saul is determined to ramp things up. Have a look at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, it's important that we hear the tone there, it is really strong, it's literally he was breathing out threats and murder. This man is is seething with violent hatred towards those that follow Jesus. And so he gets official approval to go chase them down. That's what we read in verse 2 there. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Do, Do you see how ruthless Saul is? He doesn't care who gets caught up in his net. He doesn't care if it's men or women because as far as he's concerned, a blasphemer is a blasphemer no matter who they are. He wants the church destroyed. But then on the road there, just before he gets to Damascus, he sees something that will change his life forever. Look at verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. So you've got this man who is on a dark, dark mission, get blown to the ground with an explosion of light and he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now remember, Saul thought of himself as, as a man doing the work of God, right? By hunting down Christians and yet now, out of this blinding light, a voice accuses Saul of persecuting him, the one speaking. Now now Saul knows that he's speaking to a superior being. Look what he says, he calls him lord there. Did you see that? But he wants to know who this being is. And he gets the answer that must have chilled him to his bones. Look at verse 5. "Who are you, Lord?" Saul asks. "I am Jesus whom you are persecuting," he replied. Now, we're going to uh, return to his response in, in in a short moment, but did you notice the implication of Jesus' words there? Saul is persecuting followers of Jesus, but that's not how Jesus sees it. Back in Luke's Gospel, Jesus said this to his disciples in chapter 10, verse 16. He says, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, whenever his people are persecuted for following him, whenever you cop heat for the sake of Jesus, Jesus literally takes that personally. It is as if he is standing there right beside you when you experience that. It's as if he is feeling those stones hitting his flesh, he's hearing the insults and the hatred as if, when they're directed at you, as if they are directed at him. The one who suffered and died for you is right there when you suffer for him. That is how much he identifies himself with, that's how much he loves his people. When you suffer for Christ, you never suffer alone. Well, Saul's been confronted by the truth that Jesus is alive, that he's risen, And the risen Jesus straight away starts giving the commands and he orders him to go into Damascus and await further orders to come. Meanwhile, the followers, the people who are around Saul, are are stunned. Now, from here and elsewhere where Saul retells the story later on, we understand that they saw the flash of light and they hear the sound, but what they couldn't do is make out the words or see who it was that Saul was speaking to. And what this is telling us is that the message might have been personal to Saul, but the experience was not just his alone. This doesn't all take place in Saul's head. Something spectacular really happened outside of Damascus on that road. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, makes sure that his readers know that there were multiple witnesses to this event. Well, Saul gets up, his eyes are opened but he can't see a thing. And it's it's hard not to hear a very clear message from Jesus here. Saul has been arrogant and spiritually blind. And so Jesus humbles him by striking him with physical blindness. And so now, like a helpless blind man, proud Saul is led into Damascus by the hand and told to wait he is now entirely dependent upon others. And for three days we're told he couldn't see and he did not eat or drink a thing. Have you ever been confronted with your own sin? Have you ever come to the sudden realisation that you are badly in the wrong? I want you to put yourself into Saul's position right now he's sitting there in Damascus his whole world would have been collapsing in on him as understanding of the implications of what he's seen starts to dawn on him think about it: all of these months proudly hunting down Christians thinking you're serving God and now you realize you've been doing the opposite Now he understands that Christians weren't the blasphemers. He was. All along he assumed Jesus was some pretend Messiah, but now he has seen with his own eyes the truth that Jesus is the risen Christ. He's God's eternal promised King. That he, as a faithful Jew, or thought he was a faithful Jew, should have been looking forward to and looking for the signs for and he just didn't see them. All of this means that he has got everything horribly, horribly wrong. And so as the blinded Saul sits there in Damascus, these realisations are hitting home to him. He may not have been able to see, but I have no doubt that his mind was very full of pictures. Consider the memories that would have come flooding back to him as he reflected upon this, as he pondered his life blinded and in the dark. Memories that now have a dreadful new significance attached to them. Memories of the cries, the tears of Christian men and women as he dragged them away from their families, as he imprisoned them and tortured them and saw them killed. Memories of his own voice and the voices of those alongside, accusing, mocking, jeering at, reviling these people the pictures in his mind of stones hammering into the flesh of Stephen while that godly man is calling on Jesus to forgive the people throwing them and to receive his spirit. Friends, if you have ever known deep guilt, consider Saul. That would have been a very harsh and sobering three days. In fact, verse 11 tells us that he spent that time praying, calling out to God. The reason that he didn't eat or drink, it wasn't because he wasn't hungry, it's because he was fasting in deep, heartfelt repentance. He was overwhelmed, he was grieving his sin. You know, it's a hard, hard thing coming to terms with the reality of the things you've done wrong, of your own sin those memories that make you cringe, the deep shame of knowing how wrong you've been, the recognition that you have said and done and thought things that are vile, that are shameful, that can't be undone, unsaid, unthought. Now, I expect that we've all been there at some point, even if not quite as deeply as Saul must have been Maybe actually that's what you're experiencing right now. It can be confronting, it can be a deeply troubling time, it can even be distressing, feeling that burden. And yet, as we shall see, by the grace of God, it is the vital first step to spiritual healing. It's a kind of death, you've got to die before you live the new life. Grieving sin may not be pleasant, but do you know that it's actually the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? It is a grace of God. Because our sin really does matter. And it's important that we acknowledge that reality and we admit that to God. Because that's how sin and guilt actually get dealt with and taken away. See, the righteousness of Jesus drives us to our knees but do you know that it's also the hand of Jesus that reaches down and lifts us up? Do you know, years later, the Apostle John would write, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, uh, years later, Saul himself then known by his Roman name, Paul, would describe himself as being the worst of sinners. And yet, for that very reason, he could actually rejoice all the more in the God who had shown him grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself said, that the one who's been forgiven much, loves much. And Paul had a great, great deal that needed forgiving. And so now let's turn to that amazing grace. We leave Paul behind and fasting, we go across town in Damascus to the home of a Christian man, a guy called Ananias. And Jesus speaks to Ananias in a vision. Verse 10, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, as you can imagine, understandably, Ananias responds to this, he does a double take, he goes, what? Who? Did you say Saul of Tarsus? Not Saul of, you know, Ephesus or somewhere else? This is the guy that's the attack dog of the high priests. He's not just any opponent, he's one of the chief opponents of the church. Look at verse 13. Lord Ananias answered, "I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name." So it would seem from this that Saul's mission to Damascus to destroy the church wasn't a secret. Everyone knew about it. But I want you to notice two important phrases that Ananias uses there. The first one's in verse 13. He describes the believers as your holy people. Did you notice that? In the Old Testament, um, that was the nation of Israel. But now, the young church of Jesus are his people. They're the ones who have been made holy, set apart for the glory of God. And Saul is harming them. And the second phrase is in verse 14 Saul has been sent to arrest all who call on your name. Again, in the Old Testament, God's people called on the name of the Lord. Well, now they call upon the name of the Lord's Messiah, Jesus. And so Saul is wanting to silence those who call to Jesus for their hope, for their salvation, like his people historically had called out to the Lord. So Saul has been actively working against everything that's meant to matter to God. And so this makes no sense to Ananias at all. Why on earth would Jesus want this man of all people to be healed? But Jesus has big plans for Saul. There's going to be an element of poetic justice to his grace as well. He addresses both of the things that Ananias was concerned about. Look at verse 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So did you notice the details there? First Saul, the former enemy of God's holy people, would now be Jesus' own chosen instrument. It's like Jesus saying this, I know that he came to destroy what was holy to me, but I'm going to make him like one of those holy objects that were used in the temple for the worship of God. He himself is going to be set apart for a special use in my service and in my Father's glory. And the second thing he says, I, basically, is, I know he came to silence those who call upon my name. Well, that's going to change. Jesus is going to call on this man to be his final apostle his emissary to Israel, to kings. But most of all, this Greek-speaking, Roman citizen, soon-to-be ex-Pharisee, is going to be Christ's chosen apostle that is going to take the gospel of Jesus out to the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world as well. And so passages like Isaiah 66 that Amanda read to us earlier speak of God one day sending people out to the nations of the world, in order to gather those nations for the Lord. Well, Jesus says, Saul is going to be chief among those messengers. What a reversal. I mean, think about this, he came to Damascus with the commission to persecute all who call on Christ's name and he's going to leave Damascus with the commission to take that very name further than it had ever gone before and he's going to suffer as he does it. And Jesus says to Ananias, you're the one that's going to open his eyes and you're going to give him that great commission. And so, obediently, Ananias, he gets up and he does what he's told. Look at verse 17 to 19. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. I think there is a, a beautiful touch in the middle of those verses. Ananias, did you notice, he actually shows the same kind of grace towards Saul that his Lord had shown. He doesn't come in and gloat. He doesn't come in and scold the humbled Saul, point out how wrong he was. Now you know who's lord. Now you know, you hope you feel good about it. He didn't do any of that. He walks into this man's house. He accepts the word of Jesus, and he calls the most strident enemy of his fellow Christians, brother Saul. And at last, three days after being consigned to a grave-like darkness, Saul is given his sight. And as the light of the sun pours in, the light of new life is poured in as well. Saul is healed physically and spiritually and is baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ. The man who was once dead in his transgressions and sin has now been made alive in Christ Jesus, his new Lord. Now, this is going to be an easy question for you to answer. What did Saul do to deserve astounding forgiveness? More than that, to gain for himself the great honor of being an apostle of Jesus Christ? He did nothing. You could not get a greater example of salvation by grace alone than Saul himself. When Saul wrote to the Ephesian church many years later, that it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God so that no one can boast, he knew what he was talking about. And in years to come, he would write to the church at Philippi and say that all that he used to be proud of, the great achievements of legalistic righteousness, his Jewish reputation that he carried out as a crusading Pharisee, he now considered those things to be like filthy rags. They were worth nothing to God and that meant they were worth nothing to him. That God would save a murderous, self-righteous, scumbag-like Saul is a confrontingly beautiful act of undeserved grace. And that's a grace that we can know as well. You see, compared to the righteousness and glory of Christ, all of my human presumptions, my pretensions, my boasts, and all of yours, they're just as filthy, they're just as worthless. The miracle of Saul's salvation may be visually more spectacular than yours or mine, but the truth of it's the same and that is that we're saved because Jesus took the punishment that Saul deserved and that I deserved and that you deserved for us when he died in our place on the cross. That is a miracle of love and grace in whoever it is. And it is the foundation of our faith, and it is the source of our hope. But it's also important to note some other significant words here that Ananias said to Paul. It's in verse 17. Notice how he said to Paul, to Saul, I beg your pardon, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit, but the expression filled with the Holy Spirit is a particularly significant one in the book of Acts. To be filled with the Holy Spirit basically means that the Holy Spirit's pre- Holy Spirit's presence and power in you is conspicuous to all. And so far in Acts, every time the phrase has been used, it has immediately been followed by the person speaking the great truths of God. And so what we can expect, therefore, is that because Saul is being give, filled with the Holy Spirit, that he is ready to start fulfilling what Christ commissioned him to do to proclaim his name. The one who has seen the light is going to shine the light. Later on Saul would say this to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Jesus has changed the man who used to be a weapon against the gospel and now he's going to be a weapon for it. See, now you kind of see God's amazing wisdom in choosing Saul. Saul's great knowledge of the Scriptures is now going to start working for the other side. All of a sudden, he can see. He can, he, he can see so clearly now how the Old Testament points to Jesus. And as he talks with his fellow Jews, his arguments keep showing how the Scriptures prove that Jesus is the King that the Bible had promised Verse 22 tells us that Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Do you know the Scriptures hadn't changed? They always pointed to Christ. They were doing that when Saul was studying those Scriptures under Gamaliel. They were doing that when he was distorting those Scriptures to prosecute Christians. The the Scriptures, they stayed the same. It's Saul that's changed it's like a veil has been lifted from his eyes. And that's the way he's going to describe it later in a letter to the Corinthians. The Spirit of God has enabled him to see and to understand and then explain to others what was right there all the time. And you can look at that yourself when you read the Old Testament at home and see how it points us to Jesus. Now, of course, this transformation leaves people stunned. Hang on, wasn't this the guy who's now preaching at us? Wasn't he the one that was sent up here to arrest this bunch? But what? How come? But the bafflement soon fades. And before long, the words of Jesus come true again, that he will suffer for Jesus' name. A conspiracy to kill Saul is formed. He barely escapes from Damascus with his life. Saul came to Damascus as the persecutor and he, he leaves it as the persecuted. And when he gets to Jerusalem, it's like Damascus on replay. So first of all, you get reluctant but eventual fellowship from the fearful believers. Then bold preaching in the name of Jesus. And then the threats of death. This time, the threats of death come from the very Hellenistic Jews whose cloaks he would have been holding when they stoned Stephen to death. And so once again, the believers help him escape. Ultimately, he goes to his hometown of Tarsus. Friends, the events of that day on the road to Damascus literally changed the world. Saul, who would be known more commonly as Paul, didn't stop telling people about the Jesus that he once reviled. He would journey through Europe with that message. Thousands would start following Jesus because of his message. And those Christians told other Christians throughout the Roman Empire until even the Roman Emperor himself would come to faith. And it has since spread to the whole of the earth. See, Saul's is an amazing story of radical change. A life that was turned on its head from being one lived in relentless opposition to the purposes of God to one that's lived in relentless submission and joyful submission to those purposes. And there was one thing. That made the difference on the road to Damascus Saul was shown the truth about who Jesus is you know when we see people carrying on as if coronavirus is not around still clumping together still partying on beaches ignoring good hygiene as if nothing is going to ever happen to them or the people they love you know we shake our heads don't we we want to cry out, wake up, face reality, you've got to change your life. The thing that Saul had done, had, had so badly wrong, was that he thought Jesus was a dead person. Now he knew differently and his whole life had to change. Christ is the risen Lord of all and he's still the risen Lord of all. And to live as if he isn't, it's foolish. It's dangerous. But to embrace that truth is to encounter mercy, love, hope, grace, peace. Just as Saul did. Friends, far more than coronavirus, that is the truth that needs to transform everything you do. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for calling sinners like Saul, sinners like us, to be your people. Thank you for your amazing grace in Christ Jesus. May this transform every aspect of our lives and may that be to his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.